0: This is the Bethany Podcast Network, which is part of the ministry at Bethany Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. And now, today's message. So very much for your goodness. Lord, we thank you so very much for the opportunity to be able to sing praises to you, to be able to worship you, to have eyes set upon you. Lord, for you to be able to move in the chaos of our lives Lord, that wherever it is that we're coming from, whatever it is that we're facing, whatever it is that we have going, Lord, our heartbeat, I pray, Lord, is that our heartbeat would always be focused upon you. And our desire would always be focused upon you. And that you would steady the unsteadiness in our lives. Lord, that you would be the direction to our wandering. In our study and our pursuit of answers, God, that you would be the truth that we build upon. And so right now, Lord, even as we come and we study your word and we wrestle in your word, God, I pray that this time as we read through your word, that we would labor well in it. That we would ask deeper questions of you, deeper questions of ourselves, deeper questions of our worship. And to realize, Lord, that you, the infinite God of the universe, the infinite creator of all things, are not separated from us, but that you have made us in your image and that you desire to have a connection with us, that you desire to have a relationship with us, that you desire to reveal yourself to us. The only reason we can know anything about you is because you had to first make yourself known. And so as we study your word, we study the Bible, Lord, it's not just an empty exercise. Now we're studying the revelation of who you are. So open our eyes and our ears as only you can in this time. We pray this in your wonderful name amen you can be seated so last week we started a new series and it was called it's called just a little gnat around here uh we started a new series called stranger than fiction and uh it's looking at some of the oddest and funniest or just perhaps strangest stories that are in the bible and as unbelievable or as strange as the accounts might be they are totally true accounts Right? They're totally true accounts that teach us deep truths about God, about worship, and about what life with Jesus really looks like. And so while the stories might seem weird to us, as we said last week, they're not weird to God. They're only weird to us because, number one, some of these just take place at different times culturally. They take place at different times uh, in history. Or sometimes they're just odd to us for the, for the simple baseline reason of God's ways are not our ways. Right And things that make sense to God don't always necessarily make sense to us. So one of the best ways for us to know the heart of God in the midst of all that is let's dive into it. So last week we looked at the story of Elijah and two female bears, or two she-bears. And we talked about God's holiness and how it connects to these two she-bears. And that has, that has created a lot of interesting text messages this week from a lot of you. Uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of conversations about balding and cursing and all kinds of such. And so it's been a, it's been a fun week this week. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about another animal. We're going to talk about a donkey. And we're going to talk about a donkey and a man by the name of Balaam. And, uh, and by the way, I want to be clear. I, when I just realized in hindsight, I just heard what I said a second ago. And I said about cursing. Uh, I have not received a lot of people cursing at me this week. People have been speaking of... <laughs> of the cursing that Elijah did with, and the two she bears coming out. And so that's from last week's message. This week, we're going to talk about a donkey and and a man by the name of Balaam. It's in the book of Numbers, chapter 22. You can go ahead and turn there, but we are going to, we're going to kind of chunk it apart. I'm going to give quite a bit of a backstory to lead into 22 because it already is a difficult passage to understand and it's going to make perhaps even a little less sense unless we have some backstory. So. A bit of backstory to the passage. If Numbers were a movie, the book of Numbers... By the way, Numbers is the fourth book in the Bible. So if it were a movie, you would have, the, you'd have a cast of main characters, right? So the cast of main characters would be God and Israel. right? God and Israel are the main characters. God, the chief character. Israel, the supporting to the main character, God. And so God and Israel are the main characters... And what happens in the book of Numbers is the way it's kind of broken apart is if you have chapters one through twenty one and it talks about the main characters, God and Israel. And then there's a gap. And then at twenty five through thirty one, it goes back to talking about Israel and the Lord. But in chapters twenty through twenty two through twenty four, the focus, the focus shifts a little bit. And even though the story is still about Israel, they're not contributors to these chapters and so they're talked about, they're even seen at one point in the in the chapters, but just like a movie, whenever you have main characters, there's going to be times where the camera pans away from the main characters, and it goes to kind of the supporting cast, and you get like a backstory to the supporting characters, or maybe a backstory to the villain, or something like that, but what it does is it helps build perspective for the entire story, and that's what happens with chapters 22 through 24, is it, it gives us a different perspective of the same story. The focus shifts to what's happening in a land called Moab. And at the same time that 22 through 24 is happening in Moab, Israel is actually present in Moab. They're camping in the fields of Moab. And so even though Israel is not directly involved in chapter 22 through 24, it is still very much about them. And so at this point in the Bible, when we get to chapter 22 of Numbers, Israel has has been rescued from Egypt. They've been rescued from slavery in Egypt. God has promised them a special forever home, the promised land. They are making their way to the promised land, right? But as they're journeying to the promised land, they start to act like a bunch of kids complaining in the backseat of a car in the 70s and 80s, right? And they're... they're back in the day, right? Vehicles just had a seat in the back. There wasn't minivans. There wasn't like multiple layers. You crammed 12 kids into the back seat of one car. (laughs) And, And all along the way, you would hear things like, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. It's hot. He's touching me, right? And that's what Israel does all through the wilderness. As they're wandering through the wilderness, they're complaining. They're like, it's hot. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. He's touching me, right? And so, Like a parent, right? A parent in the 70s and 80s, a parent would say, you know what? You keep it up. I'm going to pull over and you can walk the rest of the way. Well, God actually does that. So he just pulls the minivan over. He's like, get out. Y'all can walk for 40 years before you can go to the promised land. And so that's what ends up happening. So in Numbers 22, they've been wandering in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years. That time is coming to a close. They're about to move into the promised land as they're wandering toward what would be the promised land. They're they're going through different nations and they're conquering those different nations and they've had a bunch of different victories that have taken place, which starts to cause kings who are watching the trajectory of Israel traveling along the map. They say, you know what, they're heading right for us. And so it starts to cause a lot of kings and a lot of leaders to worry because they say, you know what, they're coming our way and everywhere they go, they have victory. And so it's causing a lot of kings to be fearful. One of those kings is a king by the name of Balak. And he is the king of Moab. And Balak, who's the king of Moab, he sees Israel coming. And so he summons, right? He, he summons a pagan prophet who's a non Israelite. He's from a different land. He's, he's, he hires basically a man by the name of Balaam. Balaam is involved in the dark parts of the supernatural, in sorcery. Balaam knows of God very, very well, but he doesn't worship God as God, right? He apparently makes money by casting curses on people, right? So he's sort of like a supernatural mercenary, right? A hired hand. And so people would call him in, he would curse the people, and he would deal with in the supernatural. So Balak has already watched Israel crush other nations on the way to the promised land, and he knows that no matter how big his army is or how cool the weaponry is, They're not going to be able to compete with Israel. So he says, if I can't beat them with my army because they have a supernatural God warring with them. What if I take a page out of their playbook and we go the supernatural route? So he calls on Balaam to come and to cast a curse on Israel. And so that maybe Moab might have a chance at beating them. And so the officials arrive where Balaam is. And they say, hey, we're from Moab. King Balak sent us. He wants you to come and to cast a curse on Israel because they're about to conquer Moab. Would you come and curse them? And and Balaam says, you know what? Let me think about it for a night. Let me see what the Lord has to say about that. And so the guys say, great. So they find a hotel for the night. They go to sleep. Balaam seeks the Lord and God actually speaks to Balaam. God speaks to Balaam. And he tells Balaam in verse 12, do not go with these men. This is what he says. Then God said to Balaam, you are not going to go with them. You are not to curse this people for they are blessed. And this, by the way, for those for, for you know, resident Bible nerds, this is referencing the Abrahamic covenant that God made where God said that if, if you're faithful to me, I'm going to bless you and no one's going to be able to curse you. And so God's upholding his promise, showing that he's a God of promise. And so he tells them, he tells Balaam, you can't go with them, send them away. So Balaam tells the officials, hey, I appreciate the offer, can't go, have a great trip. Sends them back to Balak. Balak's not happy with that. He says, you know what? Let's send a bigger and a higher ranking uh, delegation of officials. And you guys go and you guys open the storeroom for him. And you let him know how bad we want him. So they go and they say, hey, Balaam, we know you already said no. But King Balak really, really insists you can have all the gold or silver that you want if you just come with us and you curse Israel. To which Balaam says in verse 18, he says, if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and full of gold, I could not go against the command of the Lord my God to do anything small or great. Right. So that's really interesting because you have to remember, again, Balaam is a pagan prophet. He is not a believer. But he says, my God, my Lord, my God. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the significance of that in just a little bit. So Balaam, here's their offer. He tells them, it doesn't matter how much gold or silver you're offering. I can't do it. He says, but I tell you what, why don't y'all get a hotel for the night? Let me think about it and let's see what happens. And so they'll get a hotel for the night. And he sees what happened. He goes before the Lord. He goes, hey, what should I do? And this time, the Lord tells him that he can go. He tells Balaam that you can go, but when you go, you can only tell them what I want you to say. You can only tell Moab what I want you to say. And that's where our, our section of scripture is going to pick up, that he's on his way to go see Balak. It's also where the story gets a little strange. Okay, so... Numbers chapter 22, verses 21 through 35. Here's what it says. It says that when he got up in the morning, Balaam saddled his donkey and went up with the official of Moab. But God was incensed that Balaam was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand on the path to oppose him. Balaam was riding his donkey and the two servants were with him. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing on the path with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the path and went into the field. So Balaam hit her to return to the path. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow passage between the vineyards with a stone wall on either side. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord and pressed herself against the wall, squeezing Balaam's foot against it. So he hit her once again. The angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn left or to the right. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she crouched down under Balaam. So he became furious and beat the donkey with his stick. So then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. And she talked. And she asked Balaam, hey, what have I done to you that you've beaten me these three times? And Balaam answered the donkey. He said, well, you made me look like a fool. If I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you now. But the donkey said, am I not the donkey that you've ridden all of your life until today? Have I ever treated you this way before? And Balaam says, "Hmm, no. So then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the path with a sword drawn in his hand. And Balaam knelt low and bowed in worship on his face. In other words, he ate the dirt. And then the angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? Look, I came out to oppose you because I consider what you're doing to be evil. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away from me, I would have killed you by now. And I would have let her live. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned for I did not know that you were standing in the path to confront me. And I know if it is evil in your sight, I will go back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but you are to only say what I tell you to say. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. All right, so this is, again, one of those really crazy stories in the Bible that a lot of times gets overlooked. Matter of fact, this is one of those that when you read it, the vast majority of people, when I told them that what we're going to, because I've had a lot of people asking me, what are we going to talk about this week? I didn't know about the she bears. I want to know what this week is. And I said, it's Balaam and the donkey. And there's a lot of people that are like, oh, I've heard of that one. I have no idea what that thing is, right? And so there's been a lot of people wanting to know how this even works. So let's go ahead and address the donkey in the room. Did the donkey really give the Eddie Murphy treatment and start talking like the donkey in Shrek? Because there's really only three options here. Did the donkey really talk? Option one is no. Balaam imagined it, or this is some sort of satirical allegory. Not a bad explanation, except for one thing. There's nothing in the Bible that alludes to the fact that this was a part of Balaam's imagination, that it was a vision or a dream, and there's nothing in here to allude to the fact that this was some version of allegory. Option two, did the donkey talk? No. Right? Because God would have become a supernatural ventriloquist then. Right, And even though it looked like the donkey was talking, it was really God speaking through the donkey. But the third option, which is probably the most likely option that's available to us, is did the donkey talk, talk? Yes. Why? Because God is God. Right, God can do God things. Think about it like this. If God can create the earth, the entire universe, in six days, if he can flood the earth and then save it with a boat... If you can make a fish swallow a human, then the human live. If he could send his son to die on the cross, be buried for three days, and then beat death. And it's not the only account of resurrection in all of scripture, right? That God would foreshadow the resurrection numerous times. So we have a God that can beat death. Plus, there's a host of other miraculous things that could take place. I think what would be perhaps more strange is if God didn't have the ability to make a donkey talk if he wanted to. I think what would be more strange is the fact that God would say, you know what? I would have had the donkey talk to you, but I just can't do that. So yes, I believe that God made the donkey talk. Now, when it comes to Balaam, full transparency, Balaam is a very hard individual to understand. Number, Especially in the book of Numbers, because on the surface, Balaam seems faithful. Everything that Balaam says and everything that Balaam does, it seems like he just does all the right things, and it seems like he just says all the right things. Even when you get to chapter 23, he's offering sacrifices to the Lord, and it just seems like God is honoring everything that he is doing. And so you go, I don't really understand the narrative because Balaam seems like a very faithful individual, but the bottom line is this, looks can be deceiving. Looks can be deceiving. How often are there people in our lives who talk a lot about God, who say they love God? They perhaps go to church every once in a while or a lot, but their hearts are far from the Lord. Balaam is a pagan prophet. He very much believes in the supernatural. As a career, he's hired and makes money casting curses on different people. And because Balaam deals with the supernatural, He knows of God. He just does not worship God as God, right? But what makes it really odd for us is that in chapter 22, we already read in verse 18. He uses a particular name when talking about God. In verse 18, which we read a little earlier, he says, I cannot go against the command of the Lord, my God, the name Lord there is actually Yahweh. It's his covenantal name. In other words, it's his family name. It's the name that only, you know, you grow up and you've got, there's a couple of of us perhaps that you have a family name that if anybody else were to call you that, you'd kind of side-eye them, right? Like, you don't get to call me that. That's what my mom calls me, right? There's only a select handful of people in the world that get to call God, my Lord, my God. And that's those that believe in the Lord, my God. They're his people. And so when, when Balaam says, my Lord, my God, he's using God's family name. He's using the name Yahweh. He's not talking like generically about God, like, hey, my Elohim, right? My generic God or my idol. He says, my Yahweh. Balaam knows of God, but even though he's using the name of God, it might on this surface look like he's worshiping God and he's honoring God because that, kind of, that was kind of gutsy for him to say, To a king, wasn't it? The king says, hey, I'll give you all the gold and silver you want. And he says, I don't care if he gives me his whole house of gold and silver. I'm going to do what my Lord and my God wants me to do. Right? That's very gutsy. You're like, I want to be like a Balaam. But the thing about Balaam is he's not saying that, even though it appears like he's saying that to be honest and sincere in his worship and devotion. What we find out is that Balaam just knows that God's not a God to be contended with. Last week, we said that when we read odd and strange passages like this, that there's four things that we can learn and glean from different passages like this. We said that, number one, we learned that God and his word, they are to be honored. Right? Number two, idolatry and counterfeit worship, they're a big deal. They're worthy of judgment. And this is something Balaam's going to find out today. Number three, God's character is not going to be impugned. And number four, we talked about this one last week, is that God's holiness is not to be contended with. God's holiness is not to be contended with. So in Numbers 22 through 24, Balaam seems like he's faithful to God. So why is it that God gets so upset? Why does he send an angel to confront him and tell him he was going to kill him? Right? Because it seems odd that God would say, you can go, but then get mad when he actually goes. And so what happens is Balaam is riding his donkey. The donkey sees the angel with the sword in his hand. Donkey's like, don't see that every day. And so the donkey leaves the path and he goes walking off into a field. Right? He sees the angel. He's like, nope, not today. And he walks this way. And so Balaam gets upset and he hits the donkey. He's like, where are you going? We're supposed to go that way. Back to Moab. Let's go. And so he hits the donkey and the donkey starts moving back toward Moab, but on a different path. The angel of the Lord appears again. And by the way, the angel, there's a, depending on, there's a whole lot of theology that can be discussed here. An angel of the Lord, a messenger, there's even some uh, theologically that believe this is perhaps Jesus himself in the flesh. And there's a whole conversation that could go with that, but today isn't that day. So an angel of the Lord is standing there with a sword, the donkey sees it on another path. And so the donkey, it's a tighter path, there's a wall in the vineyard, so the donkey squeezes up against the wall trying to get away from the angel of the Lord, ends up squashing balaam's foot which only makes balaam mad so what's he do he hits the donkey changes paths a little bit later down the road the angel of the lord appears there's nowhere for the donkey to turn He can't go left it can't go right can't really back up so there's only one thing the donkey can do the donkey lays down that really infuriates balaam he's like we have to go that way so balaam then takes a stick out and just starts to wail on the donkey and that's when the donkey speaks and he goes, Hey, Hey, why do you keep hitting me? And the weird part is it doesn't even surprise Balaam that his donkey now talks. He doesn't jump off the donkey and go, you talk. Instead, he just answers the donkey. He goes, why are you beating me? And Balaam says to the donkey, well, cause you made me look like a fool. You make it look like I've never been on a donkey before. I want to go this way, you, wandering off into a field. Matter of fact, I'm so angry. If I had a sword, I'd kill you right now, donkey. And the donkey asks, asks him, right? Very logical question. Why? Haven't I been faithful to you my whole life? Have I ever misled you? And Balaam thinks about it. He goes, well, No. Which begs kind of a question because how many times do we have friends in our lives that they know the wrath and the judgment that's going to be due to us if we continue the paths that we're walking and we have friends that see the danger that lies ahead of us that God puts there and they cast warning to us and they go, you don't want to go this way, you don't want to go that way. And we kind of give our friends the same treatment that, that Balaam does to his donkey. We may not hit them with a stick, some might, but we might go and we might turn our backs on those friends. We might insult them. We might attack them. We might argue with them. We might get angry with them. Sometimes we might go on social media and start to post vague things about real friends don't do stuff like this. But they never mention the name. In a lot of ways, the angel even says, this this, this donkey of yours saved your life. This donkey was working on your behalf. You are the dummy. And so at this point, when Balaam is done having this conversation with the donkey and he realizes that he's got a faithful friend, he opens his eyes, right? The angel of the Lord opens his eyes and for the very first time, he can see the angel on the path with the sword. And that's when the angel tells Balaam that the donkey had saved his life. And he said the reason that he's there is to oppose him because what he's doing is sinning and it's not clear what he's doing to sin. That's why it gets confusing because you're going... Everything that he has said so far, you know what, maybe let me just fast forward. Let me read a little bit. No, chapter 23. He seems pretty faithful in chapter 23. And so you go back and forth between 22 and 23 over and over again, trying to say, what is the sin of Balaam? Because it doesn't make any sense. And it's not clear. But what we do know is there has to be something sort of wrong because it somewhat appears like Balaam has a change of heart. And he says, I am sinning against you. And if you don't want me to go, I won't go. I'll go back. But the angel tells him, continue on to Balak. But again, you can only say what I tell you to say. Right. And that's kind of like a little foreshadowing hint that perhaps Balaam had another motive in his heart that he wasn't planning to say exactly what the Lord said. Or maybe he was but going to put a little in there for him, make a little cheddar on the side. And God makes clear, you are to only say what I tell you to say. So when Balaam arrives, he doesn't curse Israel because he can't. He Instead, he speaks four different oracles. And in the process of doing so, he ends up blessing Israel, right? And that infuriates Balak. Matter of fact, he hops around mountains trying to give Balaam a different view. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. They're terrible. You really need to curse them. Stop blessing them. I'm paying you to curse them, not to bless them. Change mountains. Let's go over here. See, look at their camp from down here. Right? You just didn't have the right perspective. From here you can see, they're a bunch of dummies. They're awful. They're horrible. We want to destroy them. And he would say, I'm going to speak another oracle. And he would speak an oracle, exactly what the Lord told him to say. And it would bless Israel he'd be like, ah, that's not what I told you to say. So he'd switch mountains and look back at Israel. And he'd say, maybe you have to see it from this perspective. And he just kept speaking these oracles. And every time he did, not cursing, but blessing came out of his mouth. So when you take 22 and 23, you lump them together, you go... I just don't understand, Lord. Why are you so angry? Why did you tell Balaam he can't go, but then you told him he could go? Then when he did go, you tried to kill him. But then after not killing him, you said that he could keep going anyway. Why? Because the bottom line is God knows our hearts. He knows the difference between real worship and just going through emotions. He knows Balaam wasn't honoring him as an act of worship. He was trying to use God as prophet. He was trying to profit off of the Lord. He was really playing both sides where he was saying, you know what? I'm going to honor the Lord, but I'm also going to use his name for my benefit and for profit. Right? So Balaam had ulterior motives, and his motives weren't as sincere as they looked. And while you don't see it in 22 and 23, and I know a lot of times you look at it, you go, I feel like you're stretching. Pastor, don't you tell us all the time that if it's not in the Bible, don't make stuff up. That you need to stick to the context. You need to stick to the story. So how can you preach a whole message off of text that's absent? How can you say that he was unfaithful if everything in these chapters looks like he's faithful? Well, that's where the rest of the Bible comes in handy. And you have to have the whole counsel of Scripture, right? That's one reason why one of the things we tell you is context matters. And context isn't just like you read the whole chapter or the chapter before, the chapter after. The whole context is the whole Bible, When God says in Genesis, it's the same that he says in Deuteronomy. It's the same that he says in Micah. It's the same that he says in Matthew. It's the same that he says in Romans. The the message stays the same. And when you look at the whole council of Scripture, you start to look and you realize that Balaam was actually a very wicked man who had a very wicked heart. And that he was very far from the Lord. Not only did his sin hurt him, but it brought consequences to a bunch of other people. Let me show you how. Numbers chapter 25, just a couple chapters after, 22 right? Numbers 25, verse one through three, Balaam now goes home. Balak is done with him. He's like, you know what? Forget it. I can't get you to curse him. Go home. So chapter 25, one through three says this. So when Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, that is Moab, the people began to prostitute themselves to the women of Moab. The women invited them to sacrifice for their, their gods and the people ate and bowed in worship to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Right. So what ends up happening is some of the men begin to commit sexual immorality. They align themselves with the Moabite God, Baal. They see the temple prostitutes and they say, you know what, that looks like a good way to go to church. And so they start to align themselves with false pagan worship and they start to turn their hearts from God toward this idol, this fake wannabe God, Baal. And you go, "Okay, well, how did that even happen? And what does that have to do with Balaam? Well, look at Numbers chapter 31, verse 16. Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, just a couple chapters later, it says, yet these women, talking about the women that the men were drawn to, it says they're the ones who at Balaam's advice incited the Israelites to unfaithfulness against the Lord in in the Peor incident. Right now it has a name, the Peor incident. So that the plague came against the Lord's community. Right, so it turns out, that the whole reason that the Moabites start to move into the camp with Israel and they start, to, uh, they start to allure them toward pagan worship is because Baal had apparently, while saying, I can only say what the Lord says, had somehow gone away with a back channel way and had given advice to, uh, to the prostitutes and to the false worship and the, and, the, uh, and the false priests of Baal and had given them a different game plan. But understand something. The women of the Moabite, the Moabite women, they didn't make the men sin. The men did that all by themselves. They saw the women, they saw the temple prostitutes, they saw the opportunities for pagan worship practices, they saw a different kind of church service, and they were like, you know what? That seems a little bit better than my church service. And they made that decision and that stupid decision all by themselves. Men who weren't leading their families and leading their homes like God had called them to do. And so number 25, what we end up seeing, what we read a couple of chapters back, 25 verses 1 through 3, when Israel starts to sin, that was because the decisions and the wayward hearts of Israel. But Balaam's sin, it it wasn't just costly for Israel, it was also costly for Moab. There were consequences for the sin of Moab. How many of you remember when we were studying the book of Nehemiah just a couple weeks ago? And in the book of Nehemiah, it said that no Moabites could enter into the assembly of God. They could enter into the worship in the worship place of God. We didn't really address why. We just said this is because of the the sin of the Moabites back earlier in Israel's history. But we didn't really get into why. Well, let's take a look at why now. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 5, it says this. This is God commanding. He says, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. None of the descendants, none of their descendants, even to the 10th generation may ever enter the Lord's assembly. This is because they did not meet you with food and water on your journey after you came out of Egypt. And because Balaam, son of Pure, was hired to curse you. Yet the Lord your God didn't listen to Balaam. He turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. If you're reading that right, you should probably be asking yourself, what curse? Because I thought he only gave blessing. Well, the words of his mouth said blessing, but the heart of Balaam said curse. And God said that he didn't listen to the words that came out of Balaam's mouth because he knew the condition of Balaam's heart. And he ended up having to rescue, we find out, in, it talks about it in Jeremiah, uh, Joshua chapter 24. We're not going to read that passage. But Joshua chapter 24 verses 9 and 10, God even says that he rescued Israel from Balaam's words. Right? How bad a blessing must that have been that was offered, that God had to rescue them from blessing? In the New Testament, Balaam's not just talked about in the Old Testament. He even echoes into the New Testament. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 15 Peter says that the false teachers that they're battling against in the church, they're just like Balaam. Look at verse 15, 14 and 15. It says, or 15 and 16. It says that even that they have gone astray by by abandoning the straight path and they have followed the path of who? Balaam, who loved the wages of wickedness, but received a rebuke for his lawlessness, a speechless donkey who spoke with what? a human voice, and restrain the prophet's madness. In other words, had he continued along that path unrestrained without being confronted, who knows what he would have really said? And it doesn't stop there. Jesus himself addresses Balaam. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus is talking to the, one of the seven churches. And he's talking to one of the seven churches. He says that there are false teachers there who are double-minded, and they're full of fake worship. And they're actually living in sin. Just like Israel was living in sin because of Balaam. And this is what Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus says this. He said, I have a few things against you, church. You have some there who hold to the teaching of who? Balaam. Who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat, sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In other words, Balaam was conniving behind the scenes. And when we get to 25 and you go, Balaam went home. How did he have anything to do with it? Because apparently he was working some version of a back channel with Balak. And they were the ones that took their false worship and brought it into the camp of Israel. And it was all by the advice and the plan of Balaam. So he says, I'm going to stand on this high and lofty mountain and I'm going to offer blessing. All the while, I'm really going to be trying to curse them from behind the scenes. You see, for a man... Balaam, who's supposedly super holy and he cares all about the Lord, his God. God sure does spend a lot of time throughout scripture and the history of Israel condemning Balaam's actions. He not only condemns Balaam, but he says that he was double-minded. And he uses Balaam's testimony and his name to warn Christians of all future generations about false worship. And what he basically does is he turns Balaam's name into a verb. And God turns his name into a verb and he basically tells Christians from now on, don't be a Balaam. Don't be a fake worshiper. Don't talk like heaven and live like hell. Don't worship me with ulterior motives. Don't use my name to justify sin or corrupt motives or selfishness. Don't use my name and my kingdom to prop up your own arrogance and your own fake paper wannabe kingdom. Because the bottom line is this. Hear me now. False worship is still false no matter how real you make it seem or how real or how well you play the part. False worship is still false no matter how real you make it seem or how well you play the part. Period. Everything that Balaam did was for his own gain and it was for his own profit. And we... May not go around offering curses against people. But I think there's some ways that we're not as different from Balaam as I think we think we are. Because there's a lot of times in our own lives that we turn worship into a negotiation. And we tell God, you know what, God, I'll do this, but only if you do this. I'll give this up if you'll give me that. I'll start doing this if you st- start doing that. And what we miss ultimately is that worship was never meant to be this half-hearted, open negotiation with God. That God wants our whole hearts and our whole lives, but how often do we allow our fears, or we allow our selfishness, or we allow our pride, we allow our need to be in control, right? Or even our own ambitions to block the way to worship. See, David had this very same realization following his sin with Bathsheba, where God allowed him to carry out his own wickedness and his own wicked heart. And then he saw a beautiful woman. And utilizing power, he's king. He summons her, married woman, beautiful, to his house. And he has this illicit affair. She ends up pregnant. And to cover up the tracks, he ends up murdering her husband. And sitting in the consequence of his decision... He now sees the reality of everything that he's done. His eyes were opened. And when his eyes were opened, he penned one of the most heartbreaking psalms in the Bible, which is Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, this is what he said. Chapter 51, verse 15 and through 17, it says, Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice that's pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. See, what he says is, God, I feel so wretched for what I've done. I want to offer sacrifices, but you wouldn't accept them. I want to sing a song, but you don't want to hear it. I want to come and I want to, I want to offer up all the religious steps and actions. I'll go to church for the next 28 years. Never miss a Sunday. I'll pray a million times. God, I would do all of these things for you. But you don't want to hear anything from my lips right now. Because the words that come off of my lips mean nothing. Me showing up at church, great. Great. But it means nothing because my heart isn't actually in the building with me. Singing the songs, they're empty. You don't desire a bunch of empty religious platitudes or actions. I would give them to you, God, if you would take them, but you won't. And what he says is, and it's funny because David's not taking and dismantling the entire sacrificial system What he's saying is God is saying, this is the way to worship me, but his heart is so broken and he is so in so much wickedness that he can't even offer sacrifices because before he can offer a sacrifice, David says, what you really want from me is a broken heart. You want me to understand and feel the weight of my sin. That's where worship starts. That's why we say it all the time. Without humility, there can be no worship. God desires humbled hearts. See, the story of Balaam and his donkey, it's a funny one, but it's not so much funny like ha, ha It's funny ironic. Because even though Balaam is portrayed as this powerful pagan prophet, it turns out that his donkey had more spiritual insight than he did. Turns out it made Balaam the donkey in his own story. In our lives of worship, there's a lot of ways that we claim to be wise and spiritual, but we look a lot more like Balaam on the back of his donkey. We're spiritually blind. We have no idea what we're doing. We have no idea where we're going. And so we start to feel and look like a fool on the back of a donkey, wandering aimlessly. And God's call to us is don't be a Balaam. Don't be a Balaam. Are your spiritual eyes right now, or are they open? Are your ears open? Are you able to hear the word of God and the voice of God in your life? Are you reading and trusting scripture? Or like Balaam, are your eyes and ears closed that instead of listening to God and trusting God, you're too busy talking for him or trying to negotiate with him? Are you actively worshiping and trusting and pursuing God and God things? Or like Balaam, are you just trying to make sure you look the part? As long as I look like a worshiper. Is your life and your words, are they pointing people toward God and God things? Or is your life pointing people away from him like Balaam? Are you trusting and growing in scripture? Are you twisting and distorting it for your own benefit and your own gain like Balaam? Do you invite and listen to godly friends and counsel? Or do you push them away or even mistreat them like Balaam did his own donkey He was just trying to help him steer God's wrath? God's call for us is don't be a Balaam. But are you trying to play two sides of worship? Just like Balaam thought he could do. Have you surrendered your life to follow Jesus where you stop trying to be God and instead you follow him? Where you stop trying to carve your own path and instead you follow the steps of the one who's treading before you? Where you stop trying to make your own truth and your own version of the truth and instead you follow the God of truth? where you start taking next steps of faith that require surrender and they require sacrifice if you have never started a relationship with God Balaam said my Lord and my God he used the very personal name of God but he didn't know God at all but you today can know God that you could say my Lord and my God and you can mean it and it starts by saying yes to Christ and if you've never surrendered your life to him If you've never said yes to Christ, I would love to talk with you more about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to say yes, what does it mean to actually wander, not not to wander, but to actually walk in worship. And what are the steps to take about for those things? I would love to talk with you a little bit more. I'll be right over here when we're singing the song of invitation. You're welcome to come talk to me or afterwards in the lobby. I'd love to answer any questions that you might have. Maybe you just want someone to pray with you. I'd love to be that person. But what does worship look like in your life? What does double-mindedness in worship look like in your life? There's a lot of questions I think we have to ask ourselves. But if you would stand with me and let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for your generosity and goodness toward us, even when we don't deserve it. When all the ways, like Balaam, we don't want to admit that we're a lot like Balaam, but we actually have things in common with Balaam. Balaam loved being a prophet. We love being Christians. We love using your name and saying, well, I'm a Christian. But what are the ways that our lives, if we couldn't say a word, what are the ways that our lives actually utter faith? What are the ways that our lives echo real faith and real worship? Where we don't need a business card that says, I'm a Christian, because our life already screams the testimony. God, where we struggle with double-mindedness, And thinking we can negotiate worship with you. Allow us to remove the negotiation where we say, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to whatever. As long, God, as you do these things. But instead, remove the negotiation and we just say, God, I'm going to do this because you're God. I'm going to surrender to you because you're God. I'm going to follow you because you are God. I'm going to seek after you because you are God. And we need no other reason but that. God, we love you and we thank you for the opportunity to engage you in worship. We thank you that we have an opportunity not to be a bailiff. God, please don't allow our names to become a verb that's synonymous with double-mindedness and hypocrisy. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening with us today. We hope today's message has been helpful, encouraging, and challenging for you. To learn more about having a relationship with Jesus, or to learn more about our church, go to wearebethany.com.